Welcome to the Beyond X podcast. I'm your host, Mahir Ibrahimi, and every week I speak to leading industry experts, trailblazers, and market leaders, where we discuss the key topics of our time in detail and have a deep dive conversation on areas like sustainability, technology, urban planning and city design, health and fitness, and more. In today's episode of Beyond Sustainability, I spoke with Stéphane Legentil. The first half of our discussion covered the definitions and fundamentals for retrofitting and energy efficiency, the various retrofit financing models, a deep dive on the ESCO and Super ESCO models, and more. In the second half of our discussion, we touched on the impact new technologies like AI and smart buildings can play, as well as a more in-depth look at the potential of district cooling, renewable integration within the built environment, industrial sector-specific retrofits and energy efficiency, and demand-side management in reaching regional and international decarbonization goals. The different discussion points are all timestamped throughout the episode, so you can freely move around as you see fit. Stefan has nearly two decades of executive experience in the field of energy efficiency, the energy transition, and related funding mechanisms, with experiences in both Europe and the Middle East. He is currently the general manager of Sofiac in France, a fund and super ESCO that invests in reducing carbon emissions from industrial and commercial clients. He also had a major part to play in the creation of two of the largest super ESCOs in the Middle East, having helped create and personally headed Etihad ESCO in 2013, the Dubai government super ESCO in charge of retrofitting 30,000 existing buildings to save energy, and more recently advised Abu Dhabi Energy Services Company, the super ESCO responsible for reducing energy consumption from existing buildings in the Emirates of Abu Dhabi. He has also worked at some of the biggest energy service companies in the world, including Johnson Controls, where he built their European energy services portfolio, Engie, as the head of their energy efficiency activities in the Middle East region, and also served as the CEO of the Clean Energy Business Council in the MENA region. Stefan is also a past chairman of the European Association of Energy Service Companies, EUESCO. Stefan, thank you so much for joining the pod. It's, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure with me as well. Thanks a lot for inviting me. What I'd like to start with really is how you got into sustainability. I know that you had various positions in different sectors uh, in the beginning of your career, but then when you got into sustainability, it really became uh, something you've been doing, I think, for almost 20 years. Almost, yes. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, going back to 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I came to sustainability really a little bit by chance, I would say, because I was, at the time, I was working in the IT industry. So really, a job where my job was to do, to produce computers. So we're designing and producing computers for a leading brand. And I got a call one day from someone who offered me a job, which had absolutely nothing to do with what I was doing, absolutely nothing that I knew. And I was like, oh... I think you're doing a mistake. This is not at all. It looks <laughs> it looks interesting, but and the pitch was no, no, no. It's a sector that there are not so many people yet in that sector. Today is very different, huh? but mm-hmm. 20 years ago, not so many people knew that sector. So they were saying we're looking for someone that has quite a broad experience and that is ready to learn something new. And that's how things happened. And then when I started discussing with those people, I found the opportunity quite interesting. New challenge, things that were really different from what I've done before. 
that's how I started. I, I changed job at the time and started to work for, it was a large US corporation and I was launching in Europe some activities around sustainability. And that's mm -hmm. how I started with them. Very small team, very, yeah. And what moved you to the Middle East region? I spent with that company, probably, I don't remember, but it was five, six, six years, maybe, um, and doing a lot of things in Europe. And then this similar situation, I was contacted for, in fact, by an electricity company in Dubai, and that they were looking for someone to, to start activities uh, around mm -hmm. energy efficiency for the Emirates of Dubai. And they started contacting me. I was not at all ready for this. I did not even knew who they were because from Europe, I, mean, I never heard of other company before. Uh, I had been to Dubai only once uh, in the past, but as a, like a business trip. So it was a very quick trip and I had no idea about more, more than this. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, we started to discuss and it was a very interesting position, obviously, creating a company to retrofit buildings in Dubai. So the challenge was really interesting. And uh, similarly, I said, well, that's one occasion that will not come again. So let's try. And then, uh, yeah, I accepted. Uh, I thought that maybe I would be back to France months after in case... <laughs> <laughs> It did not uh, please me or in case they did not like me. And I stayed there almost nine years. So. Wow. <laughs> nine it years it almost the... sounds like it was your destiny, I think. All the different parts <laughs> got you into this. Yeah, yeah. So what I was meant to do in Dubai was similar to what I have been doing in Europe. A little bit of a different scale and also with a slightly different organization. Mm -hmm. working for an electricity company before I was working for the private sector. Yeah, but a nice challenge and I'm quite happy to have done that. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think uh, you really joined at the sort of early days of retrofitting in the region. So maybe let's set the stage a little bit about why retrofitting and building energy efficiency matters. Roughly 30 to 40% of energy expenditure comes from commercial and residential buildings in the US and mainland Europe. In the GCC region, uh, buildings actually make up a much larger percentage, obviously less industrial. Uh, and obviously there's also the energy expenditure that the industrial sector has, which we can get into as we go. Um, to put all of this into perspective, what are some of the biggest consumption factors within buildings, both residentially and in commercial office buildings from your experience? Yeah, in the Middle East, it's quite simple because given the weather patterns, there is air conditioning and that's what mm -hmm. consumes the most in the building. Very different, it's very different in Europe where it's more heating mm -hmm. during winter. But in the Middle East, there is no heating, it's mostly air conditioning. In Dubai, particularly, temperatures in summer are such that, yeah, you can't live without AC and therefore it's really what consumes electricity and you keep it all the time on, 24 hours, seven days a week. And that's what consumes probably around 70% of your electricity for your home. And in commercial building, it's probably similar, even maybe a bit more, probably, because you have less uh, consumption from other things while at home, where you're doing cooking, you're doing a lot of other things. Um, but roughly 70% is what I would say. And that's interesting because I remember when I came to Dubai, Today, we talk about retrofitting, we talk about energy efficiency, 
when I came to Dubai back, it was 2013. And I was starting to explain to people what I was doing there. And people were saying, but what do you mean by energy, <laughs> energy efficiency? What is this? And, and retrofitting, what is this? What, what are you talking about? And then uh, we spent a lot of time to explain to people, you consume electricity, you can be more efficient, you can consume less by doing still doing the same things, but using better equipment, uh, better things, and then you will be more efficient. And then people started to understand a little bit, but it was not something common. People were not even just talking about it. People were not understanding mm. what we were talking about. Uh, same for retrofitting. Retrofitting. What do you mean by retrofit? Is like simply the fact that you remove old equipment, you put new equipment that are more efficient. You've been retrofitting the equipments. So and by doing this, you are saving energy, you're saving carbon emissions indirectly uh, because you're consuming less energy. So the utility will produce less uh, energy and therefore reduce the, the carbon emissions. That's the main principle. But at that time, it was very new. In the Middle East, nobody really spoke about this. Mm -hmm. And I think even now, to be honest, I'm glad you gave a definition because even now when you go into retrofitting, a lot of times people will not know exactly what it is. People are familiar with, for example, LED bulbs and energy efficient appliances to some degree because the commercial companies are obviously advertising those things. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, when you're speaking about HVAC consumption, a lot of times I speak to people and they're like, oh, you need to keep your lights off all the time because it uses so much electricity. But in reality, that's a much, much smaller percentage, right? Especially if you just rebulb to to something more energy efficient. It's really the HVAC, the AC units, the heating units in, in other countries that make up the majority of the electricity consumption. You talked a little bit about retrofits. I think we've defined it well enough now. Uh, how, how does this go about? What are the financing models for retrofits? What are the processes, if you can take us through the sort of life journey of a retrofit project? Yeah, so there is a big difference between, I would say, consumer retrofitting and then more like retrofitting for larger organizations. For consumers, it's fairly simple. As you mentioned, they can just replace their existing lights by LEDs, uh, looking at when they replace equipment at home, like washing machine, fridge, or whatever, just looking for equipment that are efficient, that have the, the now you are being helped because there is uh, labels on the equipment. So you're looking for plus A plus equipment. So you know that you're buying things that are more efficient. For the AC, uh, it depends if it's central AC or if it's uh, individual ACs. If it's individuals, then it's easy. You can buy something that is more efficient. And there may be some programs. I'm not too sure now, but when I was in Abu Dhabi, there was a program, for example, for helping people to buy efficient ACs mm -hmm. for their home. It was a subsidy that would allow people to buy a very efficient AC for the price of a less efficient one. For consumer, yeah, it's fairly simple. It's just to think when you replace equipment to buy the most efficient ones, especially equipment that will last for many years. Mm -hmm. better try to choose the ones that we consume less because on the long term you'll, you'll gain a lot. Uh, now for commercial buildings or industrials, it's a bit more complex because there are, there are buildings that have a lot of devices that consume energy. They may have a lot of 
technical equipment in the buildings. There may be systems that already regulate or manage the building. So usually what we tell people is that they should start by doing an audit, uh, a simple energy efficiency audit, so that uh, it's a specialist, an expert that would come and that will look at, uh, that would go through the building very quickly and look at everything that consumes energy. Uh, are the systems working properly? Are they maintained properly? How old are those systems? How efficient they are? And then usually you get a, a report that gives you a very good snapshot of, of your property and how it performs today and how it could be improved. And sometimes it's simple things that you don't need necessarily to change everything. Sometimes it's equipment that is not functioning properly or that were not commissioned properly. And sometimes there are some simple measures that it can be done to make the, those equipment working properly that will save a lot of energy. Then, obviously, if you have a building with very old equipment, uh, usually when it's old, it's inefficient. It's not always the case. We've seen buildings where even if they were built like five years ago, you would say they are fairly new and they are still, uh, still they are very inefficient simply because the equipments were not in place properly or not chosen properly. But obviously, logically, if your building is very old or starts to be old, you will have old equipment. And old equipment, obviously, they are less efficient than equipments that you would have today. Like an air conditioning system today would be a lot more efficient than an air conditioning that you were buying 10 years ago. So then the question comes how to improve that building and how to replace all those equipments. So there is, in many cases, there is all those equipments have a life, a lifetime. So most of them need anyway to be replaced after years. For example, big chills that you would have on roofs or buildings, maximum lifetime is like 40 years. So if you have one that is 35 years old, it's probably a very inefficient one that is very costly in maintenance and that you will have to replace somehow in the coming years and you still have and you have a risk that it could fail at any time so if you have really old equipment the question comes how to do the retrofits or how to replace them and how to finance that because in certain cases it's coming at a certain price especially if you need to change all the equipment and therefore you have a big investment to make so some people will make the investments they consider it's part of the life of the building and they have to, after a while, to reinvest in that building to make it better. Some of the owners of buildings will be in a situation where they have not planned those investments and they are stuck uh, saying, well, I have to replace the AC typically and how can I finance that? And that's where you have models of financing that come with energy efficiency because energy efficiency when you install new equipment, basically what you start to have is those equipment generate savings in uh, electricity. In fact, they generate a cash flow compared to what you were paying before, putting equipment that save, let's say, 30% on your electricity bills mean, means you, you generate a, a cash flow of 30% of your bill. So when you were paying those bills before, so you could think of continuing to pay the bills today. It's just that 30% of it today is a cash flow because it has been saved. 
So you can invest those 30% to basically repay the, the equipment. And so you have people that would invest for you and just ask you to give the 30% saving that were generated so that they can repay the investment. So for you, you have not paid anything to replace all the equipment. And someone else is investing and you just continue to pay what you were paying before, but uh, part of it is being used to, to repay the, the investment. So a lot of people will say, yeah, but at the end, I gain nothing because I'm still paying the same things. Yes, but you have new equipment, usually with reduced maintenance because it's new. So the maintenance is uh, a lot cheaper. The equipment does not need heavy maintenance like old equipment. Plus, usually you improve the comfort of the occupants of the building. So, because all the equipment, sometimes they will fail, then you have an issue, and, or they have issues that would be solved by new equipment. So you also gain on the, the comfort of the people in the building. So that's just a, a way of doing it. There are some other um, financing schemes where you would also get into a, a model where you pay only based on the savings that are generated. So if there is no saving, you pay nothing. So that's also an interesting model. But the principle remains the same. is The savings will pay for the investment, mm -hmm. but you will only pay if the savings are demonstrated. So that's, uh, that's also an interesting model. Um, because if there is no saving, you don't pay. And so you are sure that at least the savings should be there. And if, you're not, if they are not there, well, it's not your problem. It's the problem of the company that installed the, or replaced the equipment. So uh, that's the EPC and ESCO models, if I'm not mistaken, yes, right? Yes. Yeah, and obviously you can also take your regular loans. Huh? That's all the things that huh? people would take a loan. Uh, you can use the, the money from the loan to replace the equipment. Right. And I think more and more now there's regulations that are incentivizing this. There's some in the U.S. There's definitely quite a few different ones in Europe, both mm -hmm. at the EU level and the country level, green financing for buildings, basically. So those would be the main financing models, I presume, then, right? There's... Yeah, yes. yeah. there are other models, but that would not be applicable in the Middle East because most of the models would play with tax. So you have tax reduction uh, if you invest into uh, such projects. So at the end, it's a way to, to get an incentive for the, mm -hmm. and to finance your project. But this, uh, well, obviously in the Middle East, right now there is no tax. So it's not a model that would work. And there are some other models where you have also a lot of subsidies. If I take my home country like France, we have a, a white certificate scheme. So it's a little bit complex, but. Basically, it's a system where uh, you have predefined measures that you can do. For example, replacing old incandescent light by LEDs. That would be one measure. And if you do this, you are eligible for white certificate. And then those white certificates, there is a market for them. So you can, when you've done the work, you got the certificates. And then you can sell the certificates on the market. Mm. And that gives you an incentive back for your own project. And sometimes those incentives are quite high, not necessarily for lighting, but there are many other uh, measures. In some, in some projects, the white certificate would represent like 40% or 50% of the investment. So that's a major incentive. 
that helps financing the project. You still have to find a way to finance the rest, but at least half of it is being financed through, uh, through incentives. That's very interesting. So essentially urging the private sector to reinvest in these schemes. Is that similar to a carbon offsets model, basically, or? No, it's different. It's similar. It's a similar mechanism, but it's totally different. So you also have a carbon offset that, that exists also. But the white certificate in that case is only for energy efficiency. Plans. It's based on the kilowatt hours that you save that gives you a number of certificates. And then there is a, a market. In fact, the companies that produce energy have the obligation to buy those certificates. And that's how the market is being, being organized. So as an end user, you do a project, you generate certificates, and then you can sell them to the electricity providers that have to buy those certificates. And all of them have different proposed different prices. So it's like a little bit like a stock market. Very interesting. That's innovative, I think. You touched on the ESCO model a bit. If you could, obviously you've had quite a bit of experience with the ESCO model and the super ESCO model having set up and worked with two of the biggest uh, super ESCOs in the region, in, especially in the UAE. And I think currently you're also working uh, within a super ESCO. So if you can give us an understanding of what exactly the super ESCO model is, how it's different from a normal ESCO and how that can make a difference in the long term compared to a smaller ESCO model. Mm -hmm. So maybe just to introduce what is an ESCO, maybe not all the people will know what that sure, means because sure. it's a very technical name. So it's the abbreviation for uh, energy service company. So it's a company specialized into providing energy services. Most of them would be focusing on uh, providing services that reduce consumption. So exactly what I described before, the, the people that would come, make the initial audit, advise you on what could be done and then replacing the equipment, providing the new equipment, making sure that the equipment works and saves energy. That's typically the work of uh, an ESCO. Um, when I arrived in the UE, there were maybe there was maybe one or two ESCOs that were struggling to to really find work and, and jobs. And today, I think I don't know the latest numbers, but there are maybe twenty or thirty companies uh, doing this and uh, multiple um, sectors, uh, including the private sector, which was not existing at all at the time. But then ESCOs, and that's one of the issues is that it's sometimes difficult for them to work with the public sector or difficult for them to organize the financing of projects because an ESCO is not a bank. So an ESCO is not a company that is used to provide uh, financing. So I described before that you can get financing from, from companies to do a project, but some of those ESCOs don't want to provide financing because it's not their core activity. So usually they would work with other companies, it could be funds that would provide uh, funding for those projects. But also, and that's where you talk about super ESCO. So super ESCO is not super because it's better. It's super because, <laughs> because I, I, we don't like the name, but it's, it's the way it's being called. But it's, it's a company that is above the ESCO, uh, that is helping the ESCO to execute projects by either simplifying the process. And that's very true, for example, in the uh, public sector, 
it was very difficult for an ESCO to work directly with the public sector. There need to be tenders. They need to organize a competition between ESCOs. Sometimes the, the, the subject is a bit complex. So public sector, they don't really know how to deal with that kind of projects. And that's where the super ESCO can help. It can help to organize projects on behalf of clients to help uh, ESCOs to get projects. That's one role of the SuperSco, and the other role is to uh, finance those projects. So the SuperSco is able to invest into a client portfolio, client building, and then to organize the retrofit through an ESCO. So the SuperSco will, will pay the ESCO for the work, and then the SuperSco will recover the investment through the mechanism I described before, through the savings that are being generated. And that's how it's it been created. And usually, initially, super ESCOs, most of them are for public sector, set up by the public sector, because it's usually known that it's very difficult for individual public sector organizations to, to handle such projects. So it's better for government to set up such an organization where you put together all the capabilities, the knowledge, the expertise, and that through, so that in the SuperSco and the SuperSco will organize the projects for different public sector organizations. So that's, in fact, in Dubai, that's what has happened. No? Uh, at that time, the electricity company wanted to uh, add the objective from the government to reduce consumptions in public buildings. And when they looked around what was the best setup to do this, and they came across this model, having a super ESCO. And that's where they decided to create a super ESCO in Dubai to retrofit the public sector organizations in Dubai. So the super ESCO is there to organize the project, to finance the project, to stimulate the market. And most of the super ESCOs today, so you have one in Dubai, there is one in Abu Dhabi, there is one in Saudi. And then after that, you have others that are, there's one in India. There are a few of them in Asia, Southeast Asia. There are a few in, in China. And then in Europe, there were a few also that were put in place. And, but those organizations usually have a life because when the work uh, is being done, then it's done. So I take the example, there was one that was set up in London by the city of London to retrofit buildings that were part of the city. And this organization has been doing multiple projects, especially with the healthcare industry. Also, all the NHS hospitals in the London area were retrofitted. But when all the projects are done, that's it. So at the end, the organization has been reintegrated into the, the city organization. And today is doing less of those large projects. So most, I would say most of those organizations are set up by local governments or federal governments. And then recently you have some new initiatives in the private sector. That's where I'm working on in France. But the first one was set up in Canada, in Quebec, exactly. It's called the SOFIAC. So it was, it is in fact the first super school dedicated to the private sector. And it's created as a fund with investors and lenders. And the SOFIANC is, so is, is a fund that will invest into private sector uh, projects to reduce energy consumptions. 
and currently we are launching under the same model as what has been done in Canada. We are launching Sofiac in France and that's what I'm working on right now. So the cost for, for this model, the private super ESCO, the cost would be recouped again with the savings similarly to the government funded super ESCO. Yeah, the principle is that it's the cost over the long term. And in fact, that's a big difference is super ESCO is there to invest for the long term. If you, mm-hmm. yeah, I think in Dubai, we were looking at projects for seven or eight years in, in Saudi, they were, they are looking for projects of minimum 10 years. Uh, in the case of Sofiac, we're looking at projects for 15 years. So uh, meaning we are investing into projects and we, I would say, getting our money back through the savings generated over 15 years. So this allows the projects to be going, it allows to do big projects because usually if you look at private sector clients, they will have very short-term objectives. They want to get their money back within two years or three years maximum. So if I invest in my factory, it needs to pay back within three years maximum. And if it's 3.5, too bad, I'm not doing it. Mm. And that's where the Sofiac is coming. And we're saying, in fact, we're looking at projects that will pay back in 15 years. So, So you can do all the things that you wanted to do that you will not be able to do because it's not part of your investment criteria. And that's where we are unlocking a market that was locked. And, and if you look at uh, how, if you look at the challenges that we have to decarbonize the, uh, the world, it's not by doing two years, three years payback project that right. uh, you, will, you, will, you will succeed. So you need to look at very long-term projects. And that's one step that we're taking with Sofia is to look at long-term investment, taking time to get the money back so that you can invest into large retrofits that can't will not do otherwise. So in essence, once the life cycle of the project is done, whether it's seven or eight years or it's 15 years, then at that point, once the money's been recouped, the savings then go to the end user, right? Whoever the client Yeah, is. Yeah, but in the case of Sofiac, we already, from day one, we are sharing, we are sharing part of the savings with the client. It's not... 100% of the savings that will pay back the investment, it's maybe 85%. So the client gets immediately 15% of the savings as a net benefit. But you're right. Uh, normally, it's after everything has been paid back that 100% of the savings go back to the owner. What we want to do in the case of Sofer is making sure that the owner has immediately a net benefit. So we are sharing part of it. Plus, there are some other subtleties, things that, that are being done. For example, in the case of Sofiac, we transfer the ownership of the equipment. As soon as it is being installed at the client place, we transfer the ownership to the client. And the client, therefore, becomes the owner of the equipment and we can amortize the investment. Again, it will maybe not work in the... Middle East because it's it's a tax system, so you can uh, deduct I mean, the mm-hmm. investment from your tax. So there is a tax gain. Uh, that's extremely interesting. The, ta- the tax here is coming as well, though. So yeah, yeah. So be- maybe it will become relevant, but uh, it's very relevant. I would say most countries where companies are being taxed because they can deduct that from their tax, and therefore there is a gain. So. 
Sometimes the gain is even, the tax gain is even much larger than the, just the savings. When I was mm -hmm. saying we share 15% of the savings, maybe it's, sometimes it's smaller than the tax gain that they get. So it could be interesting. Really Would they also then be able to double tap into the incentives like the, the white certificate you were designing? Yeah, sure. yeah, because the project, in fact, what happens is that we look at the project, let's say it's, it's equivalent to, I don't know, uh, there is $1 million to be invested. Uh, and then we look at all the incentives. Uh, maybe you'll get, let's say, $200,000 of incentives. So then at the end, the investment is only $800,000. So we invest $800,000 and then we get the $200,000 from the white certificate scheme. But yeah, so everything is combined so that you get the maximum benefits. And that's also a role and that's what we explain to the clients. It's part of the super score role to optimize the subsidies. So mm -hmm. in some countries, there is no subsidy, so it's, there's not much to do. In some other countries, you can get multiple subsidies from uh, government subsidies, from local subsidies. You have carbon certificates, you have white certificates, you have multiple things that can be done. And to a point where sometimes people are lost in so many subsidies, and it's sometimes very complex right. to just to to make the request for those subsidies. So it's part of the super school work also to organize and optimize those subsidies. Interesting. Do you have specialized accountants for this or lawyers or? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in fact, about... the market is getting organized. So you have people that specialize into subsidies. So we are working with people, companies that are doing this, but the idea is to be really the one-stop shop organization that will help clients to retrofit their buildings. One other thing that I did not mention is that, so it's true also in the public sector is that it's not the core business of the organization to, to do, to do retrofits or to save energy. Most organizations, they have a core business. It can be either to serve clients or, or to serve the citizens in case of a public sector organization for whatever. It could be an hospital. So it's about helping people, their health, etc. But it's not the core business of the hospital to save energy in the hospital. So many organizations don't have the knowledge, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the time to do this. And that's where super ESCOs help to do all this for the clients. And why they don't go to ESCOs directly? It's because usually they want to have uh, to organize a tender, they want to compare offers, they want to make sure that the ESCO that they are selecting is the best ESCO and and to do all this, uh, again, you need to spend time, you need to have uh, expertise, maybe you need to, if you don't have it, then you, you would use uh, consultants, so then you would have to pay the consultants. So all this can be done through the SuperSco. The SuperSco is really is there to, to organize those projects for the clients. So financing, organizing projects, and then bringing expertise, that's the main roles of the SuperSco. You mentioned some of the subsidies and incentives that are there financially, especially in Europe and, and the US more and more now. When that doesn't exist, especially when you're talking about building owners who don't basically use their own buildings, for example, someone who owns a 10-story building that they are renting to subtenants across the board, they aren't paying their own utility bills, at least in, this re in the Middle East region. So their renters basically take on that cost and without any 
regulations is forcing them to do retrofits and to be more energy efficient, they essentially have no incentive to do so. What are those incentives for them? If you were to convince a company that doesn't use their own building, but rents it out, what would the incentives be for them? Yeah, this is, you're touching on a very uh, important point. And that's something that is currently a, a market gap, I would say, because you're right. Uh, the owner would be interested to maybe, you know, he has equipment that is old in the building. He wants to change the equipment and says, okay, I'm going to put the equipment that is very efficient and maybe I'll use the model where it's the savings that pay for the equipment over over some time. But then this owner doesn't pay the electricity, uh, doesn't pay the energy, so it doesn't get the final benefit. And you're right, this is today one of the issues, and that's where the ESCO model is less um, adapted to buildings where there is a tenant that pays the, the energy. Sometimes it's the owner that pays energy and then we say, build the hand plant for, or the tenant for it. In that case, it's easier. But if it's the tenant that pays for the electricity, then you need to have a discussion between the tenant and the landlord and they have to agree. And for the tenant, maybe in some cases, it's good also because they will have better equipment. It will be more, the comfort will be improved. And so they will make savings, but paying back part of the savings to the landlord, maybe that's a possibility. But there is nothing that is that is, that is mandatory there. So mm -hmm. it, it's open to a discussion between tenant and landlord. And then if there is no agreement, then there is no, it's very difficult for the owner to, to use that model. Then he will have to use another, I would say, traditional model where he will have to pay for the work. And, so I've seen cases where you have like a commercial building and one only one tenant. In that case, it's easier. Mm -hmm. uh, Sometimes it's very long-term relations. Right. And then it's easier as well because both of them have an interest to for this. For example, if you take a hotel that has been there for a very long time, and there's a owner and then a tenant and they still, they both want to keep the property and improve the property, then usually there are discussions. It's becoming more complicated when it's one landlord and multiple tenants. Then, because you, then you need to discuss with all the tenants. Yeah, especially um, if it's, for example, a residential building where you have maybe 100 tenants renewing annually, right? So it's very short term and a large number of people. Yeah, yeah. this is still uh, an issue that, that is not solved today. And I hope that in the future there will be some... In France, we started to see some laws that allow the the landlord to invoice 50% of the savings to the tenant. But it's not very used because uh, landlord always, they are worried that if they start to do this, maybe the tenant will think of moving away. And right. So, yes, so it's still something that needs to be solved somehow legally, I would say, because there is no incentive to do those projects in those cases. And Let's let's brainstorm here. What would your solutions be just off the top of your head? Uh, maybe do you think regulations that enforce this kind of thing would be the solution or maybe some form of financial incentive? Yeah, in fact, if you look, if you use an ESCO model, the advantage of the ESCO model is that you have demonstrated savings. So mm -hmm. the ESCO, because they are following and measuring and verifying the savings over the long term, those savings are 
really identified. So it's easier than if you were if you're working on theoretical savings, because a lot of people say, oh, if you install this, you'll get 30% savings. Oh, okay, but do you guarantee it? Oh no, it's not guaranteed. But I tell you, it will happen. Yeah. No, and this school works on guaranteed results, and that's something that helps because then if you can demonstrate that the savings have happened, then, then you can probably enforce somehow that the tenant would pay for those demonstrated savings. Because at the end, it is the one that benefited from it without doing anything. But that, so, so you could imagine a system where legally, yeah, there would be a mechanism that would allow this to happen. Uh, and this would, for the tent, at the end, it would change nothing because they right. pay maybe 1,000 dirhams electricity. Tomorrow, they still pay 1,000 1, dirhams, except that, in fact, in reality, they've been saving 300. It's just that the 300, they are being paid back to repay the investment that was made in the property. And in general, they would benefit from a better new equipment, less failure, better comfort. Wouldn't there be room to have a discussion with the utility providers and the building owners to have something in the middle there? In France, for example, EDF and NG could not subsidize this to some degree, but they would get a, they would be able to submeter it back to the tenants, right? Would that not be something that's possible? Yeah, you can imagine multiple, multiple schemes. The, the question being always, people would look at their own interests. And today, if you have the owner that occupies the building, the interest is very clear. He pays the electricity bill, so he will save electricity. And saving electricity means saving money. So if you separate, when you have tenant and landlord, you separate the two. And therefore, the interests are totally mm -hmm. disjoint and therefore very difficult. So you could imagine schemes where either to make things mandatory or to ease things or to somehow align interests. But so far, I think I've not seen anywhere where this has been done yet. But I'm sure it's going to happen because if you want to decarbonize residential buildings, you will have to do something. So today, most of the way it's being done is through incentives. Okay, to, to make sure people do something, governments distribute incentives uh, so that people would act, even if they are tenants. Maybe they can replace things in their apartment or in their house uh, and get an incentive to do it. Uh, but it's not something that is viable over the long term because if you want to do more, it's more incentives and right. for governments, more budgets. How do you find that budget? That's not easy. Is there maybe some societal imperatives that can come into play? For example, something that I see more and more with airlines. Every time you have a flight, they tell you your carbon footprint for that flight. And so you know how much you're spending. Would there not be, and I mean, with new buildings, there's obviously green modeling, uh, lead certification that you know, okay, this building is this level or this level. Maybe there's a point where you can say, okay, we take buildings and we publicize their level of energy efficiency and it becomes something similar to hotels where people want to live in eco hotels more than they want to live in. Yes, this is happening. And if again, if I take the case of France uh, for residential, so we have every time you want to sell or rent a new place, you need to produce an energy certificate that is mm -hmm. basically the level of consumption of that place. And this is the very standard things with ABCD, etc. 
and it goes from A to G, I think. And currently, I think from this year, if you have a place that is rated F or G, as an owner, you are not allowed to random anymore. Right. So you can only random if you improve the efficiency. So this is a way to enforce those very bad properties mm -hmm. to be improved. And I think it, in about four or five years, that's going to change to an E, right? Is becoming the minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it increases over time. And as you said, it's also... So there is this kind of obligation on the owners, but the tenants start to look at those ratings because they say, oh, if I'm staying in an A building or a B or a C or a D, my bill at the end of the month is going to be different. So it tends to bring the, the interest to better uh, buildings, even if uh, it's always in case of real estate, it's always location, price, that are the main criteria. But... But this is an additional thing that is coming where people start to look at it and say, uh, maybe if there's no price difference, if it's same apartment or two buildings next to each other and one is rated E and the other one is B, maybe I'll go to B because at the end of the month, every month, I make savings on my electricity bills. So. But that's not currently public information, right? When you, maybe if you ask the building, they'll have to tell you, but... It's not something you can easily it's, find. In France, it's publicized uh, for each transaction. Either, okay. yeah, if you want to buy a place or if you want to rent a place, you need to have those, those ratings are, are provided. But at the last stage? No, it's publicized. If you go to a real estate agent and you look at their different properties, ah, it's mandatory to have it as part of the advert. So on the advert, That's you have the, the class, etc. Still, okay. it's not the main criteria. People are not looking at this as their main criteria to, to run something. But when you have several things, they're hesitating and they will look at this as an additional plus. I mean, I can only imagine because, and maybe it's about labels are not always the, the easiest thing for people to understand. So sometimes you need to say, okay, an average person would pay this much or this range mm -hmm. in this building, which is an A versus this building, which is an E and it's double that amount because... Uh, I know a friend of mine in, in Dubai used to live in, in these villas that had solar PVs installed and some energy efficiencies built in. At the very beginning, there were some new, I don't even remember the, the property, but it was some new building. So they were paying maybe one third or one fourth of an average villa in their utilities. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a significant amount, right? When you look at the span of whatever one or two years that you plan on staying in a place, that's, mm -hmm. if you look at that as a dollar amount and say, okay, you would save this much by living in this building. And if that amount is, for example, 10% of your annual rent, that's a significant decision-making mm -hmm. factor, right? But still, Anyways. not everybody is getting it. And it's not something that is obvious today, but slowly, I think it's coming. I think w when people aren't getting it, it's either we need to educate them better or we need to make the information more readily available, right? So I think it's maybe a combination of these two. Mm -hmm. Hopefully people will uh, tune into the podcast and get that information, <laughs> at least for France. Okay, one more thing I want to ask uh, while we're on the subject. So you mentioned uh, the example of London where they went in to retrofit uh, some of the public buildings. They basically did most of the job and now it's gone into the overall uh, government sector. What are the life cycles of these retrofit projects? For example, if you come in now and the building is 20 years old, you do a retrofit 
and get the most up-to-date or whatever, the most energy efficient products you can get now. When would you then need to retrofit again? Is it that the technology will hopefully increase? So we're not sure yet, maybe in 15 years, it should increase significantly. Or is there a linear thing like there is for computer chips, for example, every two years, there's an upgrade. What's the process there? Yeah, there is no exact, it's an interesting topic because I've not seen a lot of studies around this. I know this has been done in Germany because also Germany and the city of Berlin also, they were very early doing retrofits and they were having projects with 10, 15 years duration. And so some of those projects have finished. So they relaunched retrofits on the same properties and they have shown that yes, they can get even more savings after a second retrofit. And that's simply because in most cases, it's technology improvement. Because it, there is a lot of focus, especially well, in the last years, but even now, now, today, all the equipment manufacturers are looking at always improving efficiency of the equipments, of the systems, etc. Because something that is 15 years old compared to today, yes, you will have a gap in efficiency. Not all equipments, not everything, but but typically in air conditioning or HVAC equipments, there, there has been a lot of improvements in efficiency. Yeah, you can do a second retrofit and you will get another 20, 30% saving. So after 10, 10, 15 years, for sure. But that's until now. What about looking to the future? And I mean, maybe this is a good time to segue into the second part. When we're thinking about future investments, future retrofits, so as the technology that exists today, a building that is built today, for instance, that has all the highest standard energy efficient appliances, requirements, HVAC, lighting, everything that you could imagine. What would 15 years down the line look for them? Would they need to completely do retrofits themselves? Uh, is there going to be maybe something that's more technologically advanced that will come into play? So we, we kind of use software more and more. How do you see this forming as we go for the next 15, 20 years? Yeah, I'm sure that the, it's going to evolve the same way as what we've seen so far. So technology will evolve and then uh, you will have maybe new ways of of heating or cooling buildings that are not very common today, that are more efficient, that are very costly today, but tomorrow will be more affordable. You have new technologies that do exist today that, but they are not deployed because they are really too expensive or not mature mm. enough, which we hope that yeah, in 15 years, they will be very mass market, very mature, less expensive. So. For me, it's mostly around technology improvements. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I cannot, it's difficult to predict how it's going to evolve. Of course. Uh, it's also things that software, AI, typically. Today, for me, one of the big improvements that could be made is the, the systems that manage buildings, the BMS, building management systems that you have in big buildings. Most of them still work in a very traditional ways. At nine o'clock in the morning, switch on everything because everybody is, is in the office. And then after five, switch off most of the things, et cetera, et cetera, weekends. But you could have a lot more granular I would say, way of looking at things, like room per room. Is there someone in the room? No. Then changing parameters for that room, switching of lights automatically. 
I think that's where things could really improve. And artificial intelligence have a role. There is a role there because to somehow predict or anticipate that the building will be used that way, that day, which is different from the day before, etc. Today, the, the current BMS system don't know how to do this. But tomorrow, maybe you will have these kind of things. Or it's also things like relating weather conditions with current conditions in the building and really optimizing the two. You know, we know that tomorrow is going to be more, the weather is going to be more hot. You want to increase a little bit the air conditioning, but you don't want to do it too early because you would waste energy and people are not in the buildings. You you use this combined with predicted number of people that would come to the building the day after. So there is a lot in terms of software uh, management systems for buildings that I think can still be developed that are not mature today or not existing today. Plus then the traditional technology improvement. Okay. Right. You have an air conditioning system that produces cooling, but using a certain number of kilowatt hours, maybe in 10 years to produce the same cooling, you require half the kilowatt hours just because it's using a different technology and doing things differently. Yeah. So I think on that side, there's still a lot of things that can be done. And I think one element that was seen is the remote the work. Project. With COVID, a lot of people have been working from home. A lot of office buildings have been empty. And initially, people, the, those buildings were behaving exactly the same way, as mm -hmm. if everybody was in the office. And then people started to look at this and uh, no, there's nobody in the building. So we need to really change the settings and then... People change the settings, but then today you have a, a mixed situation. So depending on obviously company strategies, you have more or less people working from home and how the buildings, the office buildings adapt to this. I'm sure there is a lot of things that can be done because I'm not sure this is properly managed today. If you have half the people in the building, I'm not sure that the buildings are, are being optimized for this. There's still maybe right. air conditioning the whole building where only you only have half of the people. I don't remember who I was speaking to. It was one of the technology companies. So he was trying to sell something to someone. But what he was saying was people look a lot at the efficiency of the HVAC units and how they're functioning, but they don't think so much about the controls and the thermostats for the larger buildings. He was saying, yeah, you can put up predictive numbers that are very accurate based on the expected, you know, packs per in the building, number of people that are going to be in the building at any given time, and they could be precisely accurate. Uh, but you're not measuring the actual temperature correctly. So you are cooling more than you should be because the room itself or the building itself is actually cooler than you want it to be just because your thermostat isn't accurate. Um, I think that's an interesting analogy to, to bring me to, to my question here is I know that you're not really involved with the technology, so it's fine if you don't uh, really know, but how much of this investment in retrofits from super escos, from escos, do you think should maybe be going into some of the smarter metrics for data gathering, sensors, some of the things that we maybe associate with smart buildings, much more than with energy efficiency, but that could be tapped into that then, whether through the BMS and BEAM or whether through any other system, just make the building more energy efficient passively or indirectly. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, 
I think it really depends. It's case by case, unfortunately, because each building is different, different equipments. And some buildings, it will be obvious that to make the biggest savings, you need to change the systems on the roof that produce cooling, for example. But some other buildings, you'll see that yeah, the system on the roof is pretty okay, was changed a few years back only. But then inside the building, yes, there are a lot of things that could be done. And, and, and that's where you would look at maybe improving the technology and adding additional elements that would optimize the way yeah, the, the cooling typically or the heating is being used inside the building. Uh, but that, that's really case by case. Uh, you, mm. And you have also cases where you have, it's what I was mentioning a bit before, you have recent buildings with all the latest technologies, but be because they were not properly commissioned or because that technology after a couple of times, years past, people have been changing the settings, changing the system, disconnecting some things. It's not working anymore. And even if you have the latest, the greatest technology in the building, it's not making the work it's supposed to do. Uh, and therefore, sometimes it's just a matter of recommissioning or I would say, correcting all those issues and then you would have a big improvement. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of different technologies, huh? even light providers. They were light bulb providers. Typically, they, were, they are coming with lights that can identify if there is someone in the room and then you, they can send the information centrally and then you can. And in fact, it's true. You have. In, a, in an office building, you have lights everywhere. So the lights mm -hmm. can easily become a sensor and, and, and then monitor the entire, the entire building. And if you know how to use that information properly, uh, then you can do a lot uh, to improve. Uh, the question is around sensors. Yeah, you can install a lot of sensors. You can, there is always a cost. Huh? So you need to be careful of if you, the more you install things, the more costly it becomes. So it's also, if the te technology evolves into uh, lower costs for this, then you can put more. Uh, and then it's how to exploit all those data. The mass of data is being generated in real time and how to use the data to better uh, manage the, the building and the equipment in the building. Interesting. Okay. So I, th I think a lot of times I think of some of the companies I worked in the past where everyone in the office disagrees on what the thermostat level should be. So if there's multiple people in the same room, but even then you will step outside of the office space into the hallway and it's freezing cold. And then you go to the next hallway and it's very warm. So it's almost like the left side of the hand doesn't know what the right side is doing. Almost just connecting all of that data surely would be more energy efficient if, if you don't even change the underlying technologies. I feel like. That's something that should be looked into at least. That isn't being done enough. Obviously, when you're looking at a building owner's perspective, again, it comes back to how much incentives do they have, right? Mm. But, but it's it, also it, a question of maintenance, a question of mm -hmm. who is maintaining the building and how knowledgeable those people are. Because you will have a situation where you have an extremely complex, uh, sophisticated uh, systems in a building, but if, you, if the people looking after it have no idea how this is being right. managed, then very quickly, your equity costs are going to increase. It's going to be a nightmare to manage. And then people, as you, a situation that you described, people would go to where people scream. So if you scream because <laughs> it's freezing cold, someone will come 
don't know what to do, look at the roof and then maybe fix something in the roof. You don't know what has been done. Mm. And that's it. Instead of knowing exactly the building and proactively uh, trying to solve those issues. Huh? But having the proper management uh, maintenance company also has a cost. So that's, that's another issue that you'll find is that in, in many buildings, at the end, it's a question of cost. How much does it cost to maintain the building? And some owners would just look for the lowest cost and therefore they get a right. very poor service. And this has an impact on the electricity consumption, on the energy consumption. Does the O&M, does the operations and the maintenance company have an incentive to also maybe foster energy efficiency or at least make sure that they yeah. are acting in the best way Yeah, possible? that's more and more common for, I would say, for in not in small contracts, but in larger contracts. For, so for buildings of a certain size, it's very common in the contract for the maintenance company to have an objective in terms of consumption of energy with targets to reduce maybe 5%, 10%, 15% per year with penalties, with this kind of thing. But yes, it's, it happens. And that's where you make the difference between also maintenance companies and because some will know and will focus on these kind of things and some others have no idea what to do. But there's no policy for this, right? It's just a private uh, sector discussion that you would have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. We talked about HVAC and central cooling. What are your thoughts on district cooling and the role that plays overall? Do you think it's going to change things massively if it's implemented more and more? Or, Yeah, I think district cooling works well when you have, and it's the same for district heating, because in France, we also right. have district heating. In the city of Paris, in fact, for example, you have two networks. You have one for district cooling and one for district heating. So people can connect to the heating network during winter and to the cooling network during summer. I think it works well when you when the users are concentrated. Meaning, if you have a large building with a lot of maybe flats, or then it's worthwhile to have a central AC or central heating. It's less obvious when you have, for example, houses and you have a large network because then you would have a lot of losses in the network because by default central cooling is more efficient than individual cooling, for sure. Mm -hmm. Plus, the maintenance is also reduced because instead of having multiple small systems, you have one large system that is being looked at, that is being that is redundant, that is proper, is properly maintained. But then you have a network because you have the central system and then you have a network to, to carry the cooling water or the heating water to the place where it's going to be used. And that's where you would have losses if it's places where you have a lot of the use and the network is not too long, then that's a perfect solution, I think. But it cannot be used everywhere. You know, a place where you have multiple villas that have a lot of space uh, between them, uh, such a system will not be efficient because the, the losses uh, in the network to bring the, the, the water to the different villas will not compensate the gains. But okay, so if you take typically in Dubai, if you take downtown Dubai, it's, it's only central cooling through district cooling. And that's a perfect case because you have multiple buildings with a lot of flats. So it makes perfect sense to have such a system because the network is very short. That's a perfect case. And would it be in a perfect scenario, it would be more efficient than if you have the perfect environment for district cooling, it would be better 
than a normal uh, single cooling system? Yeah, because or eating. Well, getting a bit technical, but in district <laughs> when you, when you use district cooling, you would use systems that are different from when you have individual cooling. For example, what we call water cooling or air cooling. So. In, in a district cooling, you would use a water-cooled system, meaning a, a system that produces uh, cooling is also producing heat, and you have to reduce that heat. And one of the most efficient systems are using water to cool the system. So it's a water-cooled system. But then you have a lot of equipments. You have cooling towers. You use water. You need to ensure that the water is not getting polluted. So a lot of constraints that that are such that you would not use a system like this for a simple villa. It would be a lot of too costly. The system would be too costly. The maintenance would be too costly. So in a villa system, you would do, you would use uh, oh, a single system, sorry, not necessarily villa. You would use a air-cooled system. So you use the air to cool the, the system, which is a lot simpler, but a lot less efficient. So that's why by using district cooling, using water-cooled systems, you are by default a lot more efficient than individual smaller systems that use air-cooled uh, system. Okay, so it's just about dispersing it, but if that makes sense. I think in general, sprawl and villa-based housing are not the most energy efficient to begin with, right? So it's mm. just another point for the larger building. Yeah, and one of the things is also to the start of a project is not is not looking at how you're going to heat or cool the villa. It's more how you're going to isolate the villa from the outside weather. So the first step is really improving insulation. And that's where a lot of issues are, especially in, uh, in countries in the Middle East. Building codes were not put in place. Well, they were put in, put in place late. You still have a lot of buildings that exist that don't have insulation or don't have a proper insulation. That's the main issue. So the first thing to fix is really the isolation. I think leaks as well. This is mm -hmm. typically something where there is a gap between the inside and the outside. The windows are not sealed or whatever. And then you have the hot air that, uh, in case of Europe, hot air would go outside during winter. In case of Middle East, the hot air would come inside right. during uh, summer. And then you lose a lot. So isolating fixing gaps so that's the first thing to do and then after that you when this is done you can look at how to cool or how to heat the, the building makes sense okay I, th I think that puts a perfect uh, point on that we talked a bit about 15 20 years down the line how the gradual improvements in these technologies is going to make a change we talked about ai and software and whatever else that could mean what about renewable energies what are your thoughts on this and I'll put a caveat that, I mean, everyone I've spoken to within the energy efficiency industry has always said renewables should always be a secondary step. Once you've made the building as energy efficient as possible, when it's as good as possible, then you look into kind of adding to the net positive side of things. I think one adage I've heard is it's, you have a boat that has a hole in it and you're trying to increase the speed by pedaling more, but the water keeps coming into your boat. So there's a leak. I think it's a good place to move from that. What are your thoughts on this overall? And then what do you think the future means for renewable integration within buildings, both for the commercial and residential side? Yeah, I think I totally agree with what you just said before. It makes sense. First, you look at what you can reduce. And then when you've reduced, then you can look at what you can 
switch because basically by putting renewable energy, uh, local renewable energy so on your roof or next to your building, what you're doing is switching from uh, energy coming from the grid to your own energy. And that's how you basically reduce the, the, the consumption. It's just you avoid taking more electricity from the grid. But yeah, I think it's definitely something that needs to be done, especially now costs have been going down and down. So it's a lot more efficient. I think today, if you install a system, you will recover your money within five to seven years. So you still always have the issue of the tenant that doesn't know how long it's going to stay. So maybe <laughs> I'm not going to stay more than three, four years. So I'm not going to do this. But if you own a place and you think that you're going to stay, I think you need to, and if technically it can be done, because it's not always feasible, but done, it should be done. Today is very, very common. It's very easy to do, very common. Now you can even buy systems where you, I've seen that some time ago, but you, you buy panels and you just plug them into uh, the outlet and then it generates electricity and feed your wow. own house. It's, it's not complicated. You just deploy them in your garden, you plug uh, the outlet into your one socket in your home and that's it. It's done. It produce electricity and feed your home. And if you, whatever you need additional will come from the grid, but uh, it's becoming simpler and simpler to install those systems. Yeah, I think. And initially, it was one of the issues I've seen in the past is like people were, oh, energy efficient, I'm going to put panels. Oh, it's exactly what you said. No, it's, first you look at what you can reduce. But then there was this issue of, yeah, but the panels, people will see that I've put panels. So it's good for my brand. It's good for my image because it's <laughs> easy to see. Oh, look, they, they have put panels on the roof of that building. Wow. And that's one of the big issues of energy efficiency is that it's not visible. It's invisible. Someone can have done a great project. Nobody will see anything because there is nothing visible. Okay, you've changed the chiller, but it's on the roof. Nobody will see it or it's in the right. basement. Nobody will see anything in the basement. Well, solar panels, usually they are very visible. And people would make like adverts and maybe not anymore, but initially people were putting uh, here we've put panels. So, wow. <laughs> right. No, that's a very good point though. Yeah. But yeah, it's for me, it's and on now the projects on which I'm working, it's always being considered as like the last measure is okay. Well, now we've really, we've looked at everything that can be reduced. Is there any place to put solar panels? What can we do? Plus, there is a lot of, so I will take again the case of France where I live now, but there is a lot of laws that start to flow also and the influence. And typically there is one coming soon. It's going to be mandatory like in two years time. Any car park that has more than 80 slots, any car slots, mandatory will have to be covered with solar panels, mm -hmm. public or private or whatever. But if you have a car park that is open air, it's becoming mandatory to install solar panels. And this Interesting. similarly will is putting a lot of action into the market. Okay. So I have two questions on this. You said it's not always feasible. What are the shortcomings? What could make it not feasible to have a, a renewable integration solar panel specifically, let's say, in, included into the plan for the building? It could be a technical issue. It could be that because at the place where the only place where you could panel put panels on the roof, there is a lot of shade. 
-hmm. because there are maybe some buildings next to your place or because there are trees or therefore it's not worth doing it because of the shade will forbid your panels to, to work properly. Or simply, it can be not feasible. If you take a big tower like you have in Dubai, where you, the roof is very small, and on the roof you already have a lot of equipment to... Maybe you have the chiller or you have other ventilation equipment or whatever. There is no space for panels. Or you would put a few square meters, but at the size of the tower, it does not right. change much. So there are technical limitations. Where Obviously, where it works best is on villas because you have a villa and usually you have a, quite a, a roof that is not very busy on top. So then it's easy to put panels and the, the size of the panel you can put compared to the consumption of the villa make it such that it's very interesting for the people that will live in, in that villa. And you mentioned the case, I think it's in Dubai, there is sustainable city where you have all the villas that were pre-equipped with panels. And there they've been demonstrating exactly what you said. And I know someone that lives there, he told me, most of the time his electricity bill is zero because whatever he consumes is being produced by the panels on the roof. Okay, maybe in summer, during a few the few months in summer, then he has a lot more cooling consumption. And therefore, he pays electricity, but most of the time he pays nothing. So for me, it's, it's by default, this should be looked at. And today, for this, you have a lot of schemes for financing this. It's very standard, uh, mm -hmm. a bit different from ESCO models, but it's very easy to find people that will invest into uh, solar panels and then finance it for you and buy the electricity. In fact, the system will be owned by them on your roof. So they will pay you a lease for using your roof. So that's one mm -hmm. thing. And then the second thing is you commit on buying the electricity that is produced by the system over the long term at a price that is lower than what you would buy from the grid. So That's are... so interesting. So then wow. for you, you don't invest anything. You're getting a small monthly fee from the lease and you are also buying electricity at a lower price than what you get from, from the that's grid. That's such an so... interesting model. But this is still for off-grid, right? Is there... Ways no, to integrate no. this into on-grid or? Yeah, no, it's for on-grid because you, ah. yeah, yeah. The rest you. So they sell the excess back to the grid? Yes. Interesting. I had never heard of this model. So what, what do you call these kind of companies? I got to do some research now. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure now in, in the UAE, so it's been a little bit limited the way you can deploy solar. I think you can still do small systems. Given the, I think it's given the electricity companies, both in Abu Dhabi or Dubai, they've invested a lot into very large solar farms. So you will get anywhere. I've read, by the way, I think in Dubai they just published the the, the annual results for the for the what electricity company. They said that fifteen percent of their electricity now is coming from solar. Yeah. So that's quite quite interesting. When I was there at the beginning, it was zero. So. That's quite an improvement. But I think those companies, yeah, you need to look at companies that that provide those kind of offers. I'm not too sure if all of them will not do it, but you'll find these kind of offers. Usually they focus on big, on larger scale installation. So maybe on okay. commercial buildings, but you need to look 
for maybe they are now companies doing it on the villa or I don't know. It's something but but there's definitely something that is that we will see more and more because it's every everybody okay. wins. Yeah, and no, I mean that sounds like a very interesting model. And if it if it's mm -hmm. on grid, then it removes all the kind of challenges that you would face. We talked about rooftop solar. What about what about other types of solar? First of all, uh, I've seen some things about the solar films. I think they're called. They go on the windows. Obviously, they have limited uh, daylight visibility. Do you think those could potentially be feasible as well if the cost drops, or no? It's all about the rooftop. You mean tomorrow. solar films to produce electricity, or solar films yeah. to isolate? No, to produce the solar film PVs. Okay, yeah, but that's typically a new technology that. Okay. are still very expensive, but maybe in a few years' time, they will become more mainstream. And then maybe some windows will come by default with the, the film installed and you will connect the windows with some wires to... <laughs> so let's see. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, definitely a possibility. Uh, again, it will be limited to windows that are exposed to sun, etc., etc. But yeah, there is also... Uh, yeah, if you speak of solar technologies, there is also there is solar hot water. We don't speak too much about it, but it's uh, in some countries it's mandatory. I think now in Dubai it's mandatory in all the new construction. So you need to have solar hot water. It's same in France, huh, by the way. All new buildings need to have solar hot water. Uh, sometimes it does not produce a lot of hot water, but uh, it's quite cheap to install. So it's things that it's simple things that can be installed that will avoid to heat the water from using electricity from the grid. There were also I've worked a little bit with a company that was doing flexible films. So the idea okay. was to because most of the panels today are you know quite rigid, so they are flat and rigid, so they need to be installed in a certain way. But there are now companies working on. Um, solar films that are flexible so then they can be uh, adapted to buildings that have very specific roofs uh, if you take a mosque where the roof is quite like a dome maybe you will be able to put a solar film on the dome yeah interesting things also can be can be interesting okay so outside of solar i'm guessing there's other renewable integration potentials for residential and commercial buildings yeah there is there, there are um... So two things. So there is wind, but winds, small scale winds, I've not seen it really anywhere. And there are some people do it, but it's not really main market. I think really solar. But then you have also geothermal. So not much in the, in the Middle East, but in Europe, it's quite common to do ge geothermal. Even for at the size of a villa, you have a heat pump. And then you have you have some pipes that are being installed in your garden, like two or three meters below the surface. And then in summer, you use the fact that it's cooler under the earth, that level, to, to produce cooling. And in winter, it's the reverse with the heat pump. You can, you can recover calories from, from there to heat your home. So this is becoming more and more common as well. This is something I had looked at in when I arrived in Dubai, but it's very. I've not seen this being used so much, uh, and I don't really know why. I think technically there must be some limitations, but in, in countries where the weather maybe is less extreme, then it's, it's extremely interesting, and especially because you can produce cooling and heating. 
and that would be considered as renewable because the okay you use electricity from the grid to feed the heat pump but the heat pump would consume maybe one third of a, a conventional heating or, or cooling system interesting okay Okay. So outside of residential and commercial buildings, I don't want to touch too much on uh, industrial because it's a discussion in and of itself. But what about the industrial sector? Obviously, they play a big role uh, in different countries to different degrees. But more and more, I think China now, the industrial sector is the biggest user of energy, for instance. It's becoming a higher number in the Middle East. I'm sure it's also a high number in, in mainland Europe and in U.S., what are the unique challenges and more importantly, what are the unique opportunities for that sector to do both energy efficiency and renewable energy integration across the board? Yeah, I think the case of industrial is different, especially because in most cases, energy is part of their core business. Uh, most of the industrial will use, will use energy to, in their core business. So the cost of energy has an impact on the cost of what they produce. Uh, so for them, it's absolutely necessary to manage and reduce the cost of energy because it will help them to be more competitive uh, because it will help their products to be more competitive on the market. So today, I think most industrials have been managing this already. And it's very different in the sense that some industrial, like the heavy consumers, glass manufacturers or steel or aluminum or cement, those people that use really, really a lot of electricity or a lot of energy for, as part of their process, they've been looking at this for years. So usually they've done a lot of improvements, but still you have some opportunities. I remember my recent years when I was in, in the UAE, we the project with a cement manufacturer where we put in place a heat recovery system mm -hmm. so the, their process is generating heat so we've added a system to recover that heat feed the turbine and the turbine was producing electricity and we were feeding back the electricity to the cement plant so that's typically one thing that can be done in all processes that generate heat you can have a system that recover heat and produce electricity from that heat. Usually the heat is just released in the air. You need a certain temperature, you need a certain volume, but if the conditions are there, you can put a system that recovers heat, produce electricity, and then therefore you generate, you, you use less electricity from the grid. So it's, it's Interesting. a benefit. But then, yeah, problem of industrials is that it's extremely specialized. Uh, because each process is different. So many industries will have their own proprietary process. So usually they are the best people to know how to save energy. So what you can usually do is not interact with their core process, but interact with the, the systems around. So I mentioned the heat recovery, but you can also, if they have systems to produce steam, um, maybe you can look at the system producing steam. If you have a system producing compressed air, you can look at improving the, this system. So yeah, it's, it's very, you would have a few standard things that you can do with some industrials and a lot of things that only them can do because part of their core business 
Plus, usually, they, it's so close to their uh, core business that they don't, they don't want anyone to touch it. You know? They prefer right. to manage it by themselves. They don't want any ESCO to come and start interacting with their systems. So it's a totally different game, but there is a lot of gain to be done. Huh? And I think probably there are the people that have been working on this the first because they've always tried to financially improve their, their costs and energy in some cases. For some industries, it's just a few percent of their bill and therefore they've not done much. But many industries, the energy is really significant in terms of how much they spend every month that they, they've been working on this for quite some time. And similarly to what we said before, there's a lot of innovation there also. Uh, a lot of things uh, that are happening. I see in Europe with all the issues that have happened with Ukraine, with the supply of gas, uh, people are being, are trying to get rid of gas. Uh, so there's a lot of innovation around uh, getting rid of gas and, and replacing gas with electricity, with biomass, with other things. There's a lot of innovation also there. So because they're incentivized already, they have a lower ceiling of improvements is what you would say. Yeah, but still they will face, and that's what I see uh, with my job now, they are, all those industries, they are facing the same issue of, I will not invest in something that uh, does not pay back for more than two years or three years. Mm. Even some clients, it's one year. So if there's something that I need to install that will pay back in one year and a half, I will not invest because my criteria is one year. Right. Which is crazy. It's totally crazy. But that's where we can help because if we come with a solution that helps to finance those projects that they would not do themselves, then that works. If they need to replace things, but that pays back in five years, so they will not do it. They will wait for the system to break down. But if you come and say, I will invest for you, I will just pay for by the savings that are generated. Usually that's a win-win solution. That makes sense as well. Before we conclude, I just want to touch a bit on demand-side management and data. We, we talked a little bit about how data can be gathered from buildings. And obviously, once you have that data, there's a lot of things you can do. One of them is you tell the people using the building, whether they're residential again or commercial or even industrial. But based on what you were just saying, I guess I can remove the industrial from that. So just for commercial and uh, residential buildings. Once you're able to essentially tell people, okay, you're using this amount of electricity on this and this amount on this, the expectation is that they will reduce it. But I think DSM strategies in general is one of those things that I've seen done so differently in different countries. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, especially obviously having seen how it's done here in the Middle East and how it is in France. What do you think the sort of differences are? What do you think the room for growth is, if you will, in, in both these areas? Yeah, I think DSM strategies are, yeah, as you say, it's very different, uh, usually by country. And it's also very different in the way it's being tackled and financed. In many countries, it's being financed through incentives or tax reductions. In the Middle East, not so much. So then it's different ways. It's trying to organizing better and that's maybe why for me it's why there was for example a super ESCO created in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi because it's part of the DSM and they saw that to be able to tackle existing buildings you need to have a, an organization that will look only after this 
So putting a super score is a good thing to do. Where in some other countries, like in Europe, you don't have so many super scores because it's being tackled differently. It's like, okay, to do this, either you put a new law or you have tax rebate so that people will do it voluntarily or you put incentives so that people think, oh, I am gonna, it's going to be cheaper to do it. But yeah, I think it's very important. The assembly, I like the way it's being done in the Middle East because it's very well organized with articulated programs, which have usually dedicated owners and, and there's a follow-up of each program uh, all the time. Every year there is a report and you see the progress. It's quite well done in some other countries, like my country in France. It's not so obvious. You don't have a very much view on what has been done, what's the exact strategy. It goes sometimes in all directions at the same time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's being handled uh, completely differently, depending on how the governments are being organized and how they tackle that, that thing. But I like very much the way it's being done in the UAE. I think it's very logical and very organized. When I think about it a lot of times, I've had so many discussions with people. People really think lighting, for example, is such a huge user of electricity. And almost just educating people. I remember when I was young, there was ads uh, uh, on TV. Oh, turn off your lights. You don't want to waste electricity. But really, that's sometimes 10 to 15% of the energy expenditure, right? You know why? It's simply, it's what I explained to you earlier. It's visible. Lights are right, visible. Right. So the light is on, people see it and they say, oh, I must switch it off or I need to replace it with better lights because it's very visible. But something that is in the basement, nobody really cares about Yeah, it. yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> Honestly, for me, one of the things I didn't realize was the laundry, especially if you use the heater, like the, what do you call it, the drying settings in the mm-hmm. laundry. It's a very big user of electricity, especially if you don't have the sort of newer models that are much more energy efficient. Mm. So you don't realize, but it could cost you a big chunk of money just because you're using the dryer setting instead of just hanging your clothes or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> you might be able to do. The, the oven is something that, again, because I think heating and cooling in general of any kind require much more electricity, if I'm not mistaken, than mm-hmm. sound and light. If, so just having that understanding, I think, would just completely change the way I personally interact with my surroundings. If I'm leaving the room, I'd turn off the AC. But the lights, I'm, I'm still trying to turn off because it's built into my personality now. But I'm not as fussy with But the AC, you know, has to be off. Mm-hmm. And I think that switch in itself is maybe it's not so much demand side management as, as it is a cultural fix. But still, I think that plays a big role into all of this. Yeah, behaviors. I think what you're touching about is around behaviors of people. And I've been working a little bit with a company that is organizing behavioral education. And this has been deployed in Dubai. So if you look at your electricity bill, or I don't know if they send messages, but they will tell you that you consume more or less than your neighbors. And this has a huge... If the building is sub-meter though, which it isn't always. Yeah. If you have your own meter, yes, yes. But this is... And I was amazed when I, I, I met that company the first time, they were telling me, yes, if we tell you to reduce your consumption, it will have absolutely zero effect. If we tell you, oh, your neighbor is consuming less than you, like, oh, okay, that's I need to do something. That's very interesting. And that's really the behavior. And this company has been really making a business out of this, selling their services to all the big uh, utilities. And again, this has been deployed in Dubai and you, you get those messages that uh, 
I don't know, you are in the top 10 uh, consumers or, or on the reverse, uh, you are in the, the worst consumers uh, compared to people of the similar uh, situation than you. And this is when you start to tell people that they compare in a certain way with others, that's where apparently uh, people would react. Uh, that's very interesting. Playing into people's competitive nature, I think. You're 100% right. And I mean, even some of the other things we talked about, having the, the labeling of the building very obvious, or maybe not even labeling, right? The dollar amounts that you could potentially save versus a building that is next to it that is less energy efficient. Mm. I think things like that can make almost as much of a difference as just changing all the technology. It's just that we don't really think about it as much because it's easier to change a light bulb or to change an HVAC unit than it is to change people's minds. So we always focus on the things that are easier to do than the long-term factors. Anything else you'd like to add? Any other thoughts you have? No, just maybe telling everybody who's listening to us, and if they're still listening to us after almost two hours, that's good for us. But that's an important subject and that people should look at acting in their daily life trying to understand if they don't manage this subject, trying to understand better what mm -hmm. consumes exactly what you said what small actions they do every day that have an impact. And I think that's something that everybody should now look at and, and it's becoming very important. Plus, at the end of the month, if they do the right things, it, they will make uh, savings. So that's always a, a benefit that they will get. So for me, yeah, I'm also extremely careful now in the way I'm using uh, energy in my home. So that's, that's something that I think everybody should start to do. I think every bit helps. That's really the aim here, right? One of the thoughts I have is I have so many friends and colleagues who are in the retrofitting industry like yourself, and they always say, I have so much trouble. Like you were saying in the beginning, I have so much trouble explaining to people what I do. Maybe it's better now, maybe it's more, but maybe this episode serves as like a bulwark to just anyone who asks you what is retrofitting, you share this and they maybe understand it at least a little bit better. That was the hope yeah, at least. Yeah. Very good. Perfect. Anything else you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Any news you have coming up that you mentioned, Sofiak? Anything else that we should keep an eye out for that you have coming in the near future? Yeah, I think for, for me now, I'm really focusing on activities in France. And so people who are interested, they can just go check Sofiak. So it's sofiak.eu, our website. And they will see what, what we're doing. We're planning a big launch after the summer. So it's going to be very interesting. But yeah, that's about it. Perfect. Okay, then. Thank you so much for your time, Stefan. It was an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you and going over all these brainstorming exercises. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks to you. Thanks a lot for organizing this. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it.